0: Father it is such a joy to be in your house this morning as every Sunday morning. How we love to be together to sing and to rejoice, to talk and to worship and to give, to listen. But we don't want this merely to be a joyful time. We want it to be a time when we when we so submit to the leading of your spirit, that we would walk away from this place determined to be different, and by your power to actually become different, to view things in our lives differently than we did before, to wake up from the sleepiness that has overcome us in certain areas of our lives, and to be refreshed and renewed And may we renew our commitment to being faithful to you in the areas that you discussed this morning. And we will need your grace and your power to do any of that and all of it. And so we ask for it. Would you come now, Holy Spirit, you who are here, would you come and have sway over our hearts and speak to us? Lord, I pray that you would fill my mouth with your word Protect us from error. and Lead us into righteousness and truth, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. amen. I don't know about your experience, what your experience has been as we've worked our way verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Philippians, but I have found it to be one of the most engaging and encouraging studies that we've ever done together at Calvary Bible Church. There's so much here to delight in and be challenged by that I can hardly bear to see it come to an end. Nevertheless, today's message will likely prove to be the last, unless something happens between now and 1140. This will will be the last message in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I'd like to ask you to join me in looking at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter four, and let's stand together, and we'll read this text. Philippians four ten through nineteen. <laughs> Philippians four verse ten. This is the apostle Paul writing. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And the people said, Amen. And one more thing <laughs> greet the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You can be seated. Let me tell you from the the start that I will not once again expound on verses 21 through 23. We did that early in our study because I wanted to point out to you that Caesar's household is not a throwaway word Caesar's household was actually Caesar's palace, the place where his family lived, where his guards hung out. This the imperial guard, the highest, the special forces of the Roman military. And apparently, because Paul had been there for two years, a number of them had received Christ. And so he sends greetings to the Philippians from his brothers there, and he says, especially those of Caesar's household. I mean, it's it's so understated. It's just perfect and beautiful, as is all of God's word. As I mentioned last week, this part of Paul's letter is a little different than what we normally find in Paul's writings. He is not attempting to crush some false doctrine or, or shoo away any false teachers or warn us from them. In fact, he really isn't offering any commands at all here in this passage, very few commands even in the entire letter. But here he's simply writing a very gracious note of appreciation and thanksgiving to his dear friends back in Philippi because of their gift. Now, in case you don't recall the backstory, this would be a great time. A lot of times when I finish a book, I I kind of go back from the beginning and start over. We're not gonna do that today. But I do want to remind you of this of the backstory. Paul is writing this letter of thanksgiving from, a, from his Roman incarceration, one of them. He may be under house arrest or he may be languishing in jail. Either way, we know that, that he was chained to a, a Roman soldier. And he was awaiting trial that was to decide his faith. It could be life, it could be death. In either case, however, the important thing to note is that Paul had recently received a surprise visit from one of the brothers back in the home, in the home country, back in, not in his home, but in kind of the beginning of his ministry in this area back in Philippi, which Paul had, that church, Paul had planted with his own hands. The brother's name who appeared one day it was Epaphroditus, and he came bearing gifts, Needless to say, Paul was more than happy to receive the unexpected visitor. He says, look at verse 10 of chapter 4, I rejoiced greatly that at length you revived your concern for me. It had apparently been some time since Paul had heard from the church. And some have suggested that it had been upwards of 10 years. In fact, a number of scholars are emphatic that it had been 10 years. Even so, He was elated that they once again made contact with him and sent him some material support. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, he wanted them to know that he really didn't need their gift. What will it be like for you if you hand somebody a gift this Christmas? And they go, thanks, thanks. I mean, I don't need it, but uh, it was nice of you to, to give it. For Paul, he didn't need the gift. He was content in the Lord with what little provisions he had. If he has food and clothing, he was resolved to be content. In fact, he takes the opportunity here to model for the Philippians and us a heart of contentment. He's already given us some instruction on contentment, and now he's modeling it. It's a heart that is at peace with little and does not covet covet anything he doesn't have. He famously writes in in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The phrase I can do literally means I have the power, dunamis here. I have the power to do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Listen, God's going to ask you to do all kinds of hard things. And don't say it's too hard. Don't say I can't do that. Unless you're an unbeliever, then it really is too hard. But if you're a child of God, I just love to say to people sometimes, I thought you were a Christian. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So what can he do? Well, I have the power to fill in the blank, to rejoice in the Lord always. I have the power to defeat anxiety with prayer. I have the power to love the Lord with my mind. I have the power to be content in, what, in whatever I have, no matter how little or how much. And we could just work our way through the rest of the book of Philippians. Whatever it is God calls us to do, we have the power to do in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what was true of Paul is true of you and me. Because we have the spirit of Jesus, we have the power to do everything God calls us to do, no matter how challenging or seemingly impossible. It's important for us, however, to observe that while it was true that Paul was content without the money and the supplies that they sent him, he was grateful. He was grateful just the same. And this is where we pick up in our text where we left off last week. The remainder of this message, I'll just tell you up front, the remainder of this message is really about giving and sharing. We could say it's about stewardship. Occasionally somebody will ask me, why don't you ever preach on giving? To which I love to respond. My answer really is simply that I preach on whatever a text reveals. Whenever there's a text that addresses it, I'll preach on it. The nature of expository preaching is that the point of the message should always be the point of the text. And so when it's the point of the text, it'll be the point of the message. And guess what? This morning, it's the point of the text. The point of the text I can summarize this morning, even though these words aren't in this text, you'll see that that this is true. The point of the text is that God loves a cheerful giver and that it is more blessed to give Than to receive. I have four hooks I want to hang my thoughts on this morning, and they are very simple, and I think they're in your bulletin. Uh, They are just one word each partnership, perspective, pleasure, and prospect. Let's start with number 1, verses 14 through 16. Let's read that again just to refresh. I don't know about you, but my mind is like a colander. You pour it in the top and it leaks out the bottom pretty quick. (laughs) So 14, chapter uh, 4, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. It seems seems here that Paul is mitigating against any possibility that the Philippians might think he's ungrateful for the gift. After all, he just told them, thank you very much, but I didn't need that. I didn't need what you sent. In fact, he he was grateful for the gift. He was grateful for the gift. He says, verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. The word kind here is interesting. It means commendable, honorable, or beautiful. He's saying, listen, the fact that you sent me this gift its a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to me. <clears throat> Praise God for it. I can imagine back in Philippi before they sent the gift, you know, they're having church one day in Lydia's house. They're sitting around together, praying for the Lord's work everywhere. People are coming to know Christ all over the place, praying especially for the labor of their beloved apostle. Someone in the body is moved by the Spirit to bring up the fact that they no doubt heard that Paul was in jail and he no doubt had need And so they begin brainstorming, as we would, right? Begin brainstorming, strategizing about how they might share his trouble. You should know, by the way, that the word here for share, in verse 14, can you guess what it is in Greek? I know you're not Greek students, but you'll know this word, koinonia. Share, it means fellowship. It's the typical word when we say fellowship. Some churches are called koinonia, fellowship. So they were wanting to share what they had with the Apostle Paul. A similar word comes up again in verse 15, when, when Paul recalls that they alone entered into partnership. Partnership also, its root is koinonia. And so the members of the church hatch a plan to gather whatever money and supplies they can scrape together and make arrangements to have them delivered some 800 miles away In case you weren't here, when I said it last time, it's it's the equivalent of walking, and in some cases sailing, the distance between New York City and Chicago. It's how far in the ancient world Epaphroditus had to take this gift. And so they pull it together and they make arrangements to to make this 800-mile trip. Paul's writing here about their willingness to generously give and he portrays it in the context of partnership. We are partnered together. We are in true fellowship. We think of fellowship as getting together and having some prayer time, having some snack time and more snack time, and some time in the Word. We, we read the Word together. We encourage one another. We, we ask one another how we can minister to each other, how we can pray For one another. We we counsel one another with the word of God. And we think of that as fellowship. And it is all of that. But we need to understand that, that what holds it all together is this idea of partnership. When you become part of the church, you enter into a relationship with all of the others. You could call it a covenant, but the word here is partnership. We agree that we are doing something together. We agree that we'll be using all of our gifts and a lot of our resources, our talents, our abilities, even our inability to minister to one another, to achieve a certain goal. And this is is how they viewed their relationship with Paul. He may not be part of our church in Philippi, but he's our partner in ministry. And we partner with him. And, and as partners, when one is down, the rest surround and, and bring whatever is needed to encourage and support and to bail out and to do whatever needs to be done. This had been a long standing partnership between he and the church of Philippi. It started in the early days of his gospel proclamation. In the ESV, it says, At the beginning of the gospel. You can read about that in Acts 16, where Paul and Silas show up in Philippi for the first time. They bring the message of the gospel, and on the Sabbath, they're looking for someone to preach to, and they go down to the river, and all they can find is a group of women—I assume Jewish women—who are there to pray. And he comes and and he preaches to them, or at least he delivers the message of the gospel to them. And it's interesting the way it's written in Acts 16. Uh, Very theologically, this is a narrative, and then there's a theological explanation when Luke says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart, and she believed. That's how all of us believe, any of us. If you have true faith at all, it is because at some moment in time, God opened your heart to believe. You can't make that happen any more than you can make yourself be born you had nothing to do with that. You had nothing to do with it. You, you can't even remember it, but here you are. I don't have any problems with people saying, you know, I just don't know exactly when I was born again. Okay, talk to me about fruit. Talk to me about fruit. I can't remember when I was born, and I'm not real clear about when I was born again, but I see, you know, like, like uh, John Newton. Uh, I once was blind, but now I see... God has changed my heart. And so he preaches the gospel and this little church is born. He plants this little church. In the early days this was no doubt a very small church when they originally met. I got thinking about this this week. I wonder what wonder what it would have looked like to walk into their church gathering. I mean it would have hardly looked like more than anything but a family gathering. You know friends coming over for dinner. And there was Paul and Silas, probably taking turns at the front, teaching and exhorting, laughing, encouraging. And then there was Lydia, with all of her elegance and poise as a successful businesswoman. There would have been another rough-looking man who had all the markings of being a long-term local jailer. And his wife and children apparently believed they would have been with him as well in that little church. And then there was a young girl who was part of the church as well. And we don't know her name. We probably never will this side of heaven. But it was she who, had until recently, had been possessed by a demon and was now po- possessed in a very new way by the joy of the Lord. And we know Yodia and Sintuchi were there. I can guess what they were talking about. These two godly women with a zeal for the gospel and a propensity for strong opinions, they were there. Paul loved those two women. And finally, we would have seen Epaphroditus, whom we know almost nothing of. Did he have a family? Was he a single guy? He sure was away from home a long time if he was married, but he would have been there. And anyone else who had bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus since Paul had last been there? But still, it would have been a gathering of a a, a small group, probably smaller than our typical small groups here at Calvary Bible Church. Some of them are are too big. (laughs) They need to be more like the Church of Philippi. But Paul didn't much care about how large the church was. He recollects with great fondness that this little church, invisible to the busy world around it, had a long history of generously supporting the work of God, and not long after the the incident of his arrest and the earthquake there with Silas, you remember the earthquake that demolished the jail. And not long after that, Paul and Silas, you know, they planted the church, and and then they left Philippi for the larger region of Macedonia to further gospel growth else, elsewhere. And when they left. Their support kind of dried up from other churches, from everywhere apparently except from Philippi. He says, you sent me support time and again, time and again. He recalls how even when he and Silas found themselves ministering in Thessalonica, a significant distance away from Philippi, they continued to send support Paul was grateful for them. He was grateful for their history of faithfulness as well as their renewed concern for him. Partnership then seems like the appropriate word to use for his relationship with this church. They weren't just acquaintances, they were partnered together. Partnership connotes the idea of a group of people who are using their collective gifts and talents and treasures and mutual concern to accomplish a single goal. In this case, the goal was to make sure everyone within their reach heard the message of Jesus Christ. Those who gathered for fellowship are actually partners in the gospel. Are you a part of this church? Are you a part of this church? Do you belong to this church? If so, you need to see yourself As a key player here, you need to be all in. You need to be willing to make whatever sacrifices the team requires. And sometimes the team requires a lot of sacrifice, sometimes there's a lot of need. As such, they go out of their way to help one another whenever someone is in need. This partnership. Creates that kind of atmosphere. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been redeemed by the resurrected Jesus Christ. All of your sins have been forgiven. You've come mutually, Jew and Gentile, into the same church. The hostilities are torn down. There is a new love that was unimaginable before the Holy Spirit changed your heart. And and so what happens? You become very sensitive. Not so much to your own needs, but everybody else's. This is how it was. Back in Jerusalem, before Paul uh, repented historically in terms of timeline, go back before Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Go all the way back to the beginning when the church first began. And you see this very thing happening. By the way, here at CBC, there's almost always someone in the body who has financial or material needs. And some of those needs are overwhelming It's almost always the case. This is true even even as I speak, even today. There are members of this body who need material help. And if you'd like to make an anonymous contribution to those needs, you can do that easily. Just talk to one of the elders and say, I don't necessarily need to know what the need is, but I want to help. Here's what the Lord's put on my heart for that. We see this kind of giving and sharing in the early church, as I said, before Paul's repentance in Acts 2, 44 through 46. Here's what we read. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. By the way, some people try to use this to, to say our government should be communistic because of verses like this. No, 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 no. This is not the government forcing anybody. This is not the church forcing anybody to give. This is the church Its members seeing needs and willfully giving what they have to meet them. Verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. When it comes to money and material goods, the presence of the Holy Spirit makes Christians generous. Do you realize that generosity is a fruit of the Spirit? I've told you repeatedly that Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, is not an exhaustive list. It doesn't incu- include humility. That's a fruit of the Spirit. I mean, if anybody has a modicum of humility, it's got to be the Spirit, right? Not only that, but generosity. If you have generosity, where does that come from? It's got to be the Spirit. We desire to meet one another's needs. That's from the Spirit. We desire to support the work of the ministry. That's of the Spirit. The gospel changes our view of money from something that we see merely as a a means of personal happiness and self-gratification to a means by which we can bless and help others for the glory of Christ. This is Christian partnership. And then we move on to perspective. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now that strikes us as an odd statement, doesn't it? I don't need the gift. I'm happy about what it's going to do for you. At first blush, it may sound like Paul is saying, listen, uh, I'm not so unspiritual as to have to admit That I have needs. After all, I'm an apostle, and apostles don't have needs. Mm -hmm. You, on the other hand, do have needs. You need to give. And it's good for you to give. And so I'm happy for you that you gave to me. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, Paul is no money-hungry televangelist. So what is he actually saying? Well, he's saying... I am genuinely excited about the gift. Praise God for the gift. But what excites me is not the benefit that I receive from the gift, but the benefit that you will receive from the gift. Now someone is saying, thank you very much, Pastor, but that doesn't clear up anything at all. (laughs) Can you take another run at maybe explaining Paul's meaning? I know, right? I mean, when I got here, I was like, what? This This just seems upside down. Why not just say thank you for the gift? I really needed it. And and you met my need. Praise God. It seems confusing. It seems like a bona fide non-sequitur. It just doesn't add up. Unless, of course, you know where Paul is coming from. What's the basis of Paul's statement here? Well, he's getting this perspective from a source that many of us are all too unfamiliar with. Namely, The Old Testament scriptures. That's right. Paul is making this confusing statement based on the teaching of a repeated Old Testament promise from the Lord. And you ask, what is that promise? What promise? And I'll say, I'm glad to answer and I'm glad you asked. If if you want to know What Old Testament scriptures have so shaped Paul's thinking that it would be very natural for him to write things like, thank you for the gift, I didn't need it, I'm really excited about it though, not because of what it's going to give me, and he's not putting that down as we'll see in a minute, but what it is going to benefit you. And if you can't remember what Old Testament scriptures, I mean, we could start in any number of places. I really had to pare this down so we wouldn't be preaching all day. Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Just listen to this. This is the beginning at Deuteronomy fifteen ten. 10. God's speaking about his people, how they should care for the poor. And he gives them a warning. He warns them that they should, listen to this, You should not look grudgingly on the poor. Okay, now Paul is poor. He's, He's in jail. Do not look down grudgingly on the poor and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Rather, he continues, this is Moses writing, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it to him, or else we might think you're going to be thrown outside the camp, or you're going to be judged. It's not what he says. Let me read it again. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it, give it to him, because... For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake. There are conditions on the blessing of the Lord, and one of those conditions is, will you give generously to those who are in need? Not because I command it, but because I've promised Because I promise that it will bring blessing to you. It will be blessing to you. I will be blessing to you. Proverbs 28, 27. I'm going to go through several texts here. Proverbs 28, 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want. Want here means to lack. Whoever gives to the poor will not lack. But he who hides his eyes from the poor will get many a curse. In Proverbs 11, 24 and 25, I love this one. One who gives freely, one, I'm sorry, one gives freely. I think one version says, scatters. He takes his seed out and he just he just whips it out there. He's just randomly throwing it all over the place. It's the idea. One gives freely and grows all the richer. Another withholds what he has, what he should give and he only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Or how about this one, Proverbs 19.17? This one is marvelous when you think about it. Okay, let me read it. 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. All right, just think about that. Think about that. Who's the borrower? Who's the lender? And we're talking about us and God. Surely we're borrowing from God. God is lending to us at great risk. Probably never going to get any of that back. But that's not the way it's set up here. We are the lender. We're the bank. God is the borrower. Where's the risk? There is none. There is none. I mean, you want investment? Loan your money to God. When you see someone in need and you're thinking, should I give, shouldn't I give? Should I give, shouldn't I give? I mean, I, I could be just throwing this money out the window, literally, at, at the intersection. <laughs> give or not give, give or not give. And I'm not saying God always wants you to give all the time to every person, every, you know, whatever. You've you got to be, I'll let you work that out. Give or not give to this need? You should ask yourself rather, if I lend this to the Lord, will I get it back? Is it a risk to lend to the Lord? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he that is the Lord will repay him. You bet he'll repay you. Are you kidding? God will be no man's debtor. How about this, Isaiah 58, 7 through 11. God is chiding them for the way that they're fasting, and he says this. Is not the fasting God approves of to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am, I've been here all along. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Again and again and again in the Old Testament, God's people were commanded, give, I'm going to take care of you. You'll never lack the resources to give. Let me say that again. You will never lack the resources to give. You already have them. The question is, will you give? Will you give? And watch the Lord As you're giving out, watch him bring in. Giving out, bringing in. Beloved, these were precious promises to every Old Testament Jew. And guess what Paul was? He was an Old Testament Jew. And then he became a New Testament apostle. But when he became a follower of Christ, he didn't forget or neglect the promises of God i blessings for those who are generous with, with what they have received from God. It's all his. And then again, Paul didn't need to, to rely exclusively on Old Testament promises. Consider this. He already knew about Jesus. He had met Jesus. He talked with Jesus. Jesus' ministry had long since come and gone. And Paul knows what Jesus said. In Luke 6, 38, Jesus picks up on the Old Testament theme and declares this. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6, 38, Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. In 2 Corinthians 9.6, Paul taught. He taught the Corinthians when he wrote this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. This isn't Old Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the principle of the harvest. That which you sow, you will reap. And the more you sow, the more you will reap. And by the way, the reaping isn't reaping so that you can pad your comfortable existence, but you will reap so that you can sow some more, so that you can give it away. This is, this is uh, my wife is teaching economics for some teenagers right now, and uh, this is the way God's economics, heavenly economics works. It's inscrutable, but it's clear. The reason Paul said what he said to his friends in Philippi is because he knew and believed these scriptures. He earnestly believed that because the Philippians gave so generously to him, God was sure to pour out his blessing upon them so that they will be more blessed than the one who would receive their gift. Are these promises still valid today? Of course they are. Sometimes the blessings are material and tangible. Sometimes, they're profoundly spiritual. In fact, we know for certain, based on the authority of Christ, that no matter what, these dear saints were laying up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust could corrupt, nor thieves break in and steal. There will be heavenly reward, and it will be proportionate to your labor in the Lord and your generosity. It's not about, it's not about earning salvation, It's about pleasing Christ with your life. It's about being intentional, about living on this earth, and how you relate to other people, both the unbeliever, the people who are giving you a hard time, and the people in need. That's a separate category. The people who are in need, they are in need of the things that you have. Are you willing to give? Every command comes with a promise. I I believe that. And these are the promises of God. Do we believe them? And by the way, it's no use making the excuse that you just don't have anything to give. Let me show you this. If you could turn back with me to 2 Corinthians. I had Keith read read this a little while ago at the beginning of the service. I want you to read verse 8 with me. This is at the top of your bulletin, uh, kind of the big idea of the message. I just decided to use this scripture for what I consider the big idea of the message, and and you'll see why here. Verse 8, this is 2 Corinthians 9, Mm -hmm. verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Mm -hmm. He says, and God is able, by the way, I love that phrase, God is able. You see it in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when he's talking about temptation. No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man, and God is faithful. It's the same idea here. God is faithful, and here it's God is able to make all grace abound to you. What what is grace? What is grace? It is God giving you what you don't deserve, right? God is able to make all grace, all kinds of grace, Abound to you, so that having sufficiency, and this is rebutting the idea that I, I'm I, my supply is insufficient. I I just don't have anything to give. And Paul's saying, nonsense, nonsense. You don't know what you have. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, how many times did he use all there? In the Greek, the word all here means all. (laughs) So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Every good work. Look back at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. This isn't God saying, give this much or give that much. Each one must decide in his heart. And some, you know, a lot of times young people, you know, they get married, they get out on their own and they want to give to the church. Where do we start? I mean, do we have to give 10%? Nope, you can give more. (laughs) And I mean, why wouldn't you? If you understand God's promises, it's a good baseline. Each one must give what he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then look at verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and, watch this, multiply your seed. That's not seed for eating, watch. Seed for sowing. Sowing. So you start off with a little bit of seed, you sow it. God makes it grow. He provides you more so that you can sow more seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's why I say some, some of this is spiritual, some of this is, is physical, some of it's material. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, the the saints in Jerusalem who were starving because of the drought, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Your giving is going to cause those suffering people thanksgiving to God. God. I mean, just knowing that is reward. Just knowing that is reward. That you partnered with Paul and with the saints in Jerusalem to meet their needs. Oh, the joy of knowing that God used you to help someone because you had first received from him. So Paul was excited about their gift, not because it was going to meet some great need of his but because it was going to revo- re- result in great blessing that would be theirs. Get it? Mm-hmm. Is this the way you think about giving? Is that what we think whenever a new missionary is presented to be supported by the church? And by the church, that doesn't mean necessarily the bank account of the church, it means the people of the church. Do you look forward to that part in the worship service where you get to worship by giving to the Lord? Giving away your hard-earned money? Does it bug you? that God's making you do that. Let me just relieve you of that. He's not making you. He's not making you. Give it from a heart that is joyful, that loves to worship God, loves to declare to yourself, my God is not gold. Do we have a biblical perspective on giving and sharing? Paul did. And it was how he was teaching his beloved friends at Philippi to think about money and resources as well. That's partnership. That's perspective. This is Paul's unique perspective. This is the unique Christian perspective on resources, commodities, This is the Christian economic. And then, number three, there's pleasure. Look at verse 18. We are back in in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 18. This is where we read, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In case someone is still kind of put out because Paul seemed rather unthankful for the gift, he makes it clear. I have received full payment. In other words, it's enough. He sent me enough. He says, I have abundance, which means I have more than enough now. I have more than enough. And then he says, I am completely supplied. I mean, what more could I ask for? You have super abundantly blessed me. In short, Paul is saying, I am overwhelmed by your generosity. And then notice how he describes their gift. He pictures it not merely as a transfer of funds and goods, but as an Old Testament sacrifice offered to God from a pure heart, from a, can I say it again? A cheerful heart. He says, the gift you sent through Epaphroditus is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, we don't have time this morning to dig into every scripture in the Old Testament on this, but again, Paul is drawing from his Old Testament. In fact, we can go all the way back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, and look at chapter 8, right after the flood. God preserved Noah and his family from his own judgment. This was the grace of God protecting his people from the wrath of God. And they come out of the ark, he and his family, and the animals that he rescued, and what does he do? He worships God. In Genesis eight twenty through 21, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And, listen to this, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, that's a really interesting statement. Moses is telling us what the Lord was thinking in his heart. God must have told him. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Exodus 29, 18, the instruction is to burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Listen, this this isn't some kind of Buddhist idea that you set food in front of the altar And it somehow spiritually eats the food. That's not it at all. The people, the priests, were making propitiation for sins. One day his son would do that permanently. And it would be that sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. When you study your Old Testament, you discover God didn't accept all the offerings that were made in his name. Some, some of them later on were a stench in his nostrils, even though they apparently were following the necessary procedures. He hated their offerings. He hated their fasts. For when a sacrifice is made in obedience to the word of God, from a joyful, worshipful heart, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Listen, the Philippians didn't just give. They gave sacrificially. And these were not wealthy people. We are wealthy people. These were not wealthy people. Listen to how Paul describes those who lived in Macedonia. When you think Macedonia, think Philippi. I mean, Macedonia is a big area and it contained a lot of other places, like Thessalonica and others, other towns. When you think of Macedonia, I mean, your first thought should be probably Philippi and very poor. When he was taking the offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem, he writes to the Corinthians, and he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. I mean, he's talking about non-sequitur. I mean, these are... He's combining things that are not normally combined. Severe test of affliction on top of abundance of joy, on top of extreme poverty, he says, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, And beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of being able to take part in the relief of the saints. And this, this was not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. These were poor suffering, persecuted people. They had nothing, and yet somehow they gave. How'd they give? God will make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you will have an abundance for every good work. Is that how you give? No wonder their gift to Paul was viewed as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was a sacrifice. It was offered to God as a willing worship. It was sacrifice. It cost them something. You remember David when the plague occurred after he numbered the people and the angel of God was, was doing his thing and David was trying to stop it and he ran up to uh, what would eventually be the place that they would build the temple on Mount Moriah. And... The man who owns the field comes out and he says, David, do you need this land? I give it to you. David said, no, no. I will not offer anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. It cost them something. It was not easy. Is that how we give? This is partnership. This is perspective on money and possessions. This is pleasure. The pleasure of the Lord in receiving what we offer to him from a joyful and obedient heart. And then finally, there's prospect. This is future orientation. What do we have to look forward to? This is is present grace, acting in faith because of God's promises of future grace. What is the promise of future grace? Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Paul still teaching his beloved Philippians about God. And notice he calls him my God. My God. The God of whom he is speaking is the one whom Paul is intimately acquainted with. It's as if he's saying, I have staked my whole life on him. And he has never once let me down. He is my God. And, and I can tell you something about my God. If your hope is in my God, <coughs> then this much <coughs> excuse me, this much I know, my God will supply all your needs according to His riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. You'll never need to worry about running out of what you need to be faithful to the gospel, and faithful to Christ. The supply that God has access to is an infinite supply. He doesn't have a limited bank account. He doesn't have limited treasure. We used to sing as, as kids in a, in, in, well, as a church when, when I grew up was growing up, uh, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. Uh, he owns infinitely more than that. He owns the whole cosmos. He will freely give it to you so that you will have sufficiency to do his will and to share with others. You say, I know of a need. I just don't think I have the resources to give. Then, based on God's promise, here's what you should do. God, I really want to help. I want to be generous. Would you provide so that we can be generous? Do you ask God to give? Not not just to your needs, but do you ask God, would you give give me whatever I need? so that I can give to that person or that family or that need? I don't have it. Would you give it to me? You've promised that that you would make sure I have all sufficiency. Right now, I don't see it. Would you either reveal it or send it? Give freely. Give generously. Give sacrificially. Spend and be spent for God. Give your all. And I was wrapping up the sermon this week. Again, I remembered the same church in New Jersey when I was real little. And we as a church used to sing a song. And here is, I looked it up last night. And so many of you older folks know this. You younger folks, probably not. That's okay. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. God will always be the giver. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What's the all things? What do you need? What do you need to be faithful? What do you need to, to give to someone else who has a need? The benediction in verse 20 seems especially appropriate in light of all of this. And so we read, to our God. Notice how Paul has gone from my God to our God. He's not just mine. He belongs to all of us and we to him. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And the people said, Oh, beloved, this is the great grace of our awesome God. Paul says he's my God. And so many of us can say with Paul, he's my God. But I must ask you, dear friend, is he your God? Do you belong to him? Is he real in your life? Do you love him? Today, this very day, he could become your God, if you will repent and believe. And then you will understand that even your repenting and believing was a gift of his grace. Surrender your all to him, and he will become your great and glorious Savior, and you his dear child. Beloved, this has been a marvelous study. I mean, who doesn't absolutely love the book of Philippians? We started it together, I looked it up, 11 months ago, but not quite a year. 28 messages, it's bittersweet to let it go. But do you say, we started all over again. <laughs> we'll still learn things. And yet I can't wait to see what the Lord has for us next. So here's my plan, initially, for the next three weeks. Uh, uh, this coming week, Stuart Scott will be here next Sunday keith will preach for two weeks i've asked for a little bit of time to recalibrate and get ready to take you through some psalms and so we're going to work through the psalms until christmas it's kind of you know i i left off somewhere around psalm 25 and we'll pick up somewhere in there and just some select psalms we'll we'll go through them until christmas of course there'll be some kind of christmas message Uh, it's one of the few topical things we do around here but uh be a Christmas message, and then the biographical in the beginning of January, and then we'll be off to a new adventure in the New Testament, and it'll be exciting. And I have no idea what it is yet, but <laughs> but anywhere we go in the New Testament it's going to be glorious and wonderful, and it'll exalt Christ, and we will be fed, and encouraged, and I can't wait. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for. Your word, it really is a a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. You teach us not only how to live, how to love, how to worship, how to repent, how to restore and renew everything. May we, like Job, love your word more than our necessary food. Oh, Father, I pray that you would continue teaching us. That we would be, um, we would view this community as a true partnership in the Lord. May the resources that we have be freely available to those who have need. And may that only increase the love that is here in this body, this palpable, ambient love that we sense whenever we are together may it only increase. Would you protect us, Lord, from any division? Anything that would dishonor you in fracturing the body? And may Jesus